Welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. This is a podcast intended to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum published by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm host Ben James, and every week I lead you through the lessons in a way that is intended to help you better understand the scriptures, make you think about important questions, and strengthen your faith in Jesus Christ. You can also find the video version of these lessons on my YouTube channel, titled 29th Floor Sunday School. If you find these lessons useful, please consider becoming a subscriber. Enjoy the lesson. Hello, welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. Glad you can join me today from my office in central Hong Kong as together we study the Come Follow Me lesson for June, sorry, July 6th through 12th. And today we'll be discussing Alma chapters 30 and 31. Well, as you can see, I am still in Hong Kong. My plans were originally to travel uh, back to the States where my family is still located, uh, but uh, my flight was canceled, and so I had to push that back a bit. Uh, hopefully, uh, I'll be taking off next week. That's the current plan, but in this lovely corona world in which we live, coronavirus world, uh, plans are never certain. So we'll see what happens. But that does mean I've, uh, I was here for Hong Kong on the uh, July 1st, the day in which uh, Beijing enacted a new legislation that basically uh, overrides Hong Kong's basic law, which is their constitution. They, uh, Beijing basically said, yeah, we don't think we need to follow that anymore when it comes to matters that we care about. And what Beijing cares about is making sure that people in Hong Kong know that Hong Kong remains a part of China. So uh, for behavior that they don't like, that they tend to, uh, that they would view as being independence motivated, uh, you have the threat of potentially life in prison. So huge change for Hong Kongers who are used to uh, freedom of expression on uh, really any subject matter. So we'll have to see how things uh, change over time. Um, you know, hopefully uh, freedom of religion and other forms of expression are not suppressed, but uh, only time will tell uh, what will happen. Um, so I am going to be careful in terms of things that I say. I, uh, I, love, li I, I love living in Hong Kong. I think Hong Kong is an unbelievable city. Uh, China's been a part of my life for a very, very long time. I, I love that country and I love that people as well. Um, and uh, that's kind of where we're at at the moment. Well, uh, in today's lesson, again, we'll be discussing Alma chapters 30 and 31. Uh, we're getting a little bit of a different uh, twist here. There's only a few chapters, just two that we will be covering. And both of these two chapters uh, present uh, two different uh, attitudes of uh, either apostasy or just really anti-religionism, uh, uh, if you will. And the Book of Mormon writer, uh, who is Mormon as far as we can tell, uh, took for, thought that these uh, examples were important for us in our day. Of course, the Book of Mormon is written for our day. And uh, we'll, we can, so, so today we're going to be spending some time going through the arguments that are presented both by Korihor and by the Zoramites and discussing... Uh, what is wrong with these arguments? In some ways, what might be right with the arguments? What are some things that we, as uh, faithful and religious people, need to look out for? Because, uh, you know, to be honest, some of the critiques might be, uh, might, might have some merit to them. But at the end of the day, um, of course, the, the focus is to 
uh, is, is to build our faith. And uh, that's, that's done by uh, understanding what the arguments are saying and where, what are the problems with those arguments. Because one of the things that we'll take away from today's lesson is uh, often those who are non-religious uh, um, and push back against things of faith often tend to think of themselves as being very uh, enlightened, uh, and, and, you know, very modern in their thinking. But one of the things that uh, these lessons show us is there's really nothing modern about not believing in God, about the naturalism and the materialism that Korhor espouses to, or, or really the uh, j just sheer laziness and hypocrisy of the Zoramites. Um, there's really nothing new about these philosophies. They've been around for thousands of years, and they'll continue to be around for thousands of years. So we as uh, faithful believing members uh, need to be aware of them, need to understand them, and uh, of course need to understand uh, what some of the flaws are with them so that those uh, arguments do not adversely impact our faith. So that's where we will be uh, spending most of our time today. Uh, now in terms of setting the historical scene, if you recall we just uh, finished the, the, the missions of the Sons of Messiah. Uh, we've got the anti-Nephi-Lehi safely uh, established in the land of uh, Jershon, and they are there enjoying uh, the protection uh, of the Nephites. And uh, with that peace established, uh, we're no longer focused and concerned about uh, physical wars. And now we turn to uh, some of the spiritual wars in the Book of Mormon, which, which are some of the things that I absolutely love. I, I, I enjoy... Uh, studying these chapters just because I think the arguments uh, in, presented in them are important and, and, and compelling and uh, worth uh, spending some time getting familiar with. Uh, so with that, uh, let's, let's start here. Um, we're introduced to uh, this man, Korahor, who is being described as Antichrist. And what they mean is that he is opposed to the notion of Jesus Christ. And what is that notion of Jesus Christ? It is, uh, in part, it is the idea that God himself comes down, descends from his throne, and atones for the sins of the world. Now, so there are several assumptions that go uh, with this belief in Christ, and those are specifically what Korahor pushes back against, and this is what makes him anti-Christ. The first is that well, one, obviously, that God exists. Uh, I think that's, that's a given. If you believe in Christ, you clearly believe that God exists. Um, but two is the idea that God himself will come down to this world. Uh, several important ideas uh, are, are borne out in that notion. One is the idea that God is able, either has a body or is able to take up a physical body. Uh, we'll see that as something that the Zoramites pushed back against strongly. They did not believe that God uh, had a body or was capable of having a body. And that is one of the reasons that they were anti-Christ. And two, it's the idea that God will come down and get involved in our lives. Uh, which, if you recall what Abinadi was teaching, uh, to the, that, that, that's what the, uh, the, the, the priests of Noah were pushing back against as Abinadi was teaching them. Was that this idea that God is not just some abstract idea out there that you, uh, you know, that you give thought to every once in a while. You might uh, seek him or her as you uh, need some favor, but really most of the time something you don't have to worry about. 
No, a God that is willing to come down to this world to take upon himself a body and redeem us of our sins, that's a personal God. That is a God that is going to get involved in your life if you allow him. And if you reject him, uh, then you're miss, either missing out on the blessing of having him in your life or potentially subjecting yourself to some form of, uh, uh, of, uh, of punishment or, or really just missing out on insignificant blessings. So, uh, you know, that, that's an active God, not a passive God, but one that, uh, that, that gets involved in our lives. Um, and so there's that notion of Jesus Christ. And then, of course, uh, the final one is the idea that he will come and atone for our sins, which means that we need our, that we are committing sins, that, that we do things that are wrong. And that, of course, brings with it the idea that there is right and wrong. If there is no right and wrong and God is just some spirit or non-existent and allows whatever, to, uh, whatever we want to do to happen, which is core horse philosophy, then we don't need some God coming down and redeeming us from sins because we're incapable of committing sins. Um, and again, that's what Korahor uh, preached, was that humans do not commit sins, therefore we do not need some God to come down and, and save us. So that, all those things put together make the Korahor and also the, the Zoramites, we'll see, uh, they are all anti-Christ. They are preaching philosophies, preaching ideas that are uh, counter uh, that, that are completely opposed uh, to uh, what Jesus Christ is and, and why he is necessary and why we have faith in him. And it's not a coincidence, and it is unfortunate, but uh, I'm actually grateful as the one uh, presenting the lesson that we don't cover uh, Alma chapter 32. Uh, we'll get to that next week because that is the antidote uh, to these philosophies. It's the, the idea of, of faith. And so we'll, we'll briefly hit on that in these lessons uh, as well. But it's important to realize and, and to look for ways in which Korahors and the Zoramites, in which their teachings and their philosophies are, to the core, anti-Christ. They are against uh, Jesus Christ and, and against everything uh, that we have faith in and the reasons that we have faith in Jesus Christ. So it's important for us to remember that when, when we t consider ourselves Christians, when we consider ourselves those who believe in Jesus Christ, we're, we're doing more than just saying that we believe in God. Uh, lots of people just believe in God, but they don't have any details about uh, God or, or, or their understanding is, is very different. Uh, as Christians, our beliefs in Christ, uh, we have some very specific ideas, those ones that I just, that I just mentioned. Namely, that God himself will come down, taking upon himself a physical body and live with us. And he will do so for the purpose of redeeming our sins uh, through his atonement and also overcoming death uh, through resurrection. Which is a final way in which Korhor is uh, antichrist as well, in which he believes that once we die, that is the end. He is a, he is a naturalist in that, uh, from, from that point of view. Uh, so let's, let's first understand, though, a uh, little bit about uh, Nephi law as we are presented uh, in chapter 30. We're going to read verses uh, 7 through 11 in Alma chapter 30. Now there was no law against a man's belief, for it was strictly contrary to the commandments of God that there should be a law which should bring men on to unequal grounds. For thus saith the scripture, Choose ye this day whom ye will serve. And if a man desired to serve God, it was his privilege, or rather, if he believed in God, it was his privilege to serve him. 
But if he did not believe in him, there was no law to punish him. But if he murdered, he was punished unto death. And if he robbed, he was punished. And if he stole, he was punished. And if he committed adultery, he was also punished. Yea, for all this wickedness, they were punished. For there was a law that man should be judged according to their crimes. Nevertheless, there was no law against a man's belief. Therefore, a man was punished only for the crimes which he had done. Therefore, all men were on equal grounds. The Nephite notion of equality, thus, is very different from uh, some of the uh, current political philosophies today uh, about what equality uh, stands for. And that's all uh, very prevalent um, in, in European countries, countries where, uh, uh, you know, like China, where they've uh, attempted communists before, and uh, increasingly so in the United States as well, this idea of equality, uh, not just of... Uh, equality of opportunity or equality before the law, but equality of outcomes. But uh, what we're presented here in, uh, Nephi, uh, in Nephite society is very much a notion of equality before the law, especially as it uh, relates to religious freedom, that men and women would not be punished for the things that they believed, uh, but it was really for their actions uh, was the only way in which the law could have any uh, any power over them, any authority to either punish them or compel them uh, to do certain things. But for their beliefs and, and for the things that they said uh, and, and for the things that they thought, there was the, the law had no control over that, which really is a very advanced uh, notion of, uh, of religious freedom. Uh, uh, definitely a very Western idea, but to, to think that the, uh, those living uh, in the American continent uh, you know, 2,000 years ago, uh, had these advanced notions of freedom of uh, religion um, and freedom of thought is is is, is very interesting. Um, but of course, one of the dangers of when you have freedom of religion or freedom of thought is that you are going to get a a large number of different uh, thoughts out there. Some of which are good, and some of which uh, are are not so good. Um, and that is one of the dangers, and Korihor is one of the, the results of that. And it's as, it's as if uh, Mormon is presenting this, this background to kind of explain, well, how, how could you guys let a man like Korihor uh, come up? And uh, we need to recognize that there's, uh, it's, 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 it's just the way it is, that there's always going to be people uh, that are going to disagree with the things that we believe. And you know what? That's okay. That's the way we would want it. That's certainly better than the alternative in which either a state or somebody else compels believes uh, in a certain way. Uh, and so because of that, uh, the Nephite society uh, spurns, uh, brings about this certain Korihor. So uh, let's, let's get into uh, Korihor's uh, teachings and his uh, philosophies. And those are, are first presented in verses 13 through 17 in Alma chapter 30. O ye that are bound down under a foolish and a vain hope, why do ye yoke yourselves with such foolish things? Why do ye look for a Christ? For no man can know of anything which is to come. Behold, these things which ye call prophecies, which ye say are handed down by holy prophets, behold, they are foolish traditions of your fathers. How do ye know of their surety? Behold, ye cannot know of things which ye do not see. Therefore ye cannot know that there shall be a Christ." You look forward and say that ye see a remission of your sins, but behold, it is the effect of a frenzied mind. 
And this derangement of your minds comes because of the traditions of your fathers, which lead you away into a belief of things which are not so. And many more things did he say unto them, telling them that there could be no atonement made for the sins of men, but every man fared in this life according to the management of the creature. Therefore every man prospered according to his genius, and that every man conquered according to his strength. And whatsoever a man did was no crime. Korhor's philosophy probably sounds uh, familiar to you, and it's because it really is the predominant philosophy uh, of many people in the world today, especially those that are not religious. And the, the, the irreligious, at least in the United States, is the fastest growing uh, demographic uh, in terms of uh, religious adherence. Those that are either atheistic or uh, don't uh, ascribe affinity to any uh, particular religious group, uh, defining themselves as, as, as the irreligious or the non-religious people. And that's exactly what Korhor's uh, philosophy is. Um, and his conclusions are uh, given to us in, in verse 17. And, it, you know, it's, it's quite clear that, uh, you know, it's this very laissez-faire, uh, you know, do what you have to do in order to survive uh, mentality where it doesn't really matter what you do because at the end of the day, in verse 18, he, he says that uh, when a man was dead, that was the end thereof. So it's this philosophy of do whatever you want. There's no God there to punish you for it. Uh, just do what you have to to get ahead, to build the type of life that you want to, that you want to build, live the type of life that you want to live because it doesn't matter because we're all just going to die anyway. Um, which is, you know, obviously a very, uh, if nothing, a depressing thought, uh, you know, a very depressing way to go through life. Uh, but also, I, you know, from my point of view, reap with, uh, with a lot of difficulties and a lot of problems. Uh, we're, also, we're often prevented, uh, presented with the question of, uh, you know, is it possible for a non-religious person uh, or an atheistic person uh, to, uh, to be a good person? Um, and, you know, philosophers spend a lot of time and have, you know, spilt tons of ink addressing this question. And from my point of view, it's, it's really not. It's not possible to be a good person uh, outside the confines of religion. And why do I say that? Because what's a good person? Who's there to define what a good person is? Um, you know, my definition of a good person is obviously uh, scripted by my belief in God and my uh, religious value system. But if we are to take those religious notions out of the equation and everyone is left to come up with their own ideas of what a good person is, then everyone's going to come to the conclusion that they are a good person. And uh, at the end of the day, no one really is a good person because there's, there's no standard from which to judge uh, being a good person. Uh, so that's the way I see it. That doesn't mean that there aren't people that are non-religious that, that don't do good things. There certainly are. And by my standard, I think there's non-religious people that are, uh, that are good people, that do good for others, and that really care about uh, other people. Uh, but again, that's based on a standard that I have that is based on uh, a, a religious belief in, uh, in, in God. And if everyone has their own standards, then there's really no such thing then there really are no standards. And if there are no standards, then there can be no such thing uh, as, a, as a good person. <clears throat> so, uh, but, but that's what Korhor's philosophy is. It's this very 
uh, materialistic. We're here in this world. Let's do what we want to do. Let's, let's live it up. It doesn't matter what the result is. And also a very atheistic uh, naturalism. You know, once you die, that's the end thereof. Uh, there is no God. Um, you can do whatever you want to. And that is the conclusion that Korihor has to get to. But in order to get to that conclusion, he has to first cut through, and this is what we read in the first few verses, uh, cut through the, uh, the, the notions of religion uh, that he's attacking. Uh, Nephite society was, uh, it, 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 at least it appears to be a very religious uh, society with, with a strong religious uh, uh, backing to it. And so in order to convince people, he first has to uh, cut through the ideas of, of religion and, and, and show his opposition to those and, and attempts to persuade others um, uh, to, to put away their religion. And so, uh, and, and so this is what the first few verses does. And it's, and it's interesting and worth understanding what he's doing. So, so in verse 13, he starts off and he, and he talks about how uh, people are uh, bound down under a foolish and a vain hope. And uh, we look for Christ, and his conclusion is, For no man can know of anything which is to come. And uh, my response to that is, how do you know that, Korhor? How do you know that no man can know of things which are to come? Now, obviously, Korhor doesn't know of things which are to come, so that's plenty clear. So if we are in the business of trying to understand that which is to come, we certainly should not look to Korahor or anyone else like that. Uh, but just because he is not aware of things which are to come certainly does not mean that nobody is aware of things which are to come. And in fact, this argument that no one is aware of things to come uh, is guilty of the logical flaw of, uh, of begging the question. And we often misuse that in the English language. Uh, but, but what begging the question really is, it's, it's a logical fallacy where... Uh, the premise assumes the truth of the conclusion. So the, the premise behind the idea that no man can know of things to come is that there is no greater being out there or no other uh, source to provide information about things to come. And once you assume that, well, then you're right. Yeah, there's no one can know of things to come. If there's nobody, no source of information about things to come, then no one can know of things to come. But again, it, that assumption uh, is kind of hidden there, and he doesn't bring it out because it's not true, obviously, uh, at least according to those who are religious. We do believe in God, and we believe in a God that, do, that is capable of telling us things which are to come. And with that assumption, uh, it is very possible to know of things which are to come. Um, and, and, but, but that's what Korhor is trying to get at. He's trying to say that it's, it's irrational to, to, to believe in things which are to come or to believe that you can possibly know things which are to come. Uh, but again, that, that, that conclusion is based on the premise that there really is no God. So this is just another way of saying there is no God. Uh, and that's verse 13. And then in 14, he talks about uh, these prophecies and holy, uh, handed down by holy prophets. And he says, but you know what? They're just foolish traditions of your fathers, uh, which is a very common attack on religion. You know, these are just foolish things that are handed down. This is ancient history that has no relevance. It's, uh, a, it's a bunch of uh, <clears throat> uh, superstitions. It's a bunch of ideas uh, by people that lived at a different time that are uh, much more ignorant than us, 
Um, and because of that ignorance, they're morally inferior to us. And so, you know, these traditions have no bearing in the modern world. And uh, I, I, I personally find that uh, line of reasoning to be quite uh, disgusting. Now, that's not to say that all, tradi all traditions are wise or should be uh, kept to the same level, but to take every tradition and to simply dismiss it and say this is foolishness handed down uh, is, is, in my mind, foolishness on stilts, to be honest. Uh, I, I think it's insane to say that all of this tradition and, and wisdom that has been uh, accumulated by the people that have gone before us, um, because in some ways, and, and, I, and we, we've, I've talked about this in earlier lessons, um, religion is, if you're going to take the spiritual aspect out of it, the divine aspect out of it, and just say, you know, what is the functional utility of religion, um, it is, if nothing, it's the, uh, it's the taking of wisdom accumulated across generations and handing it down through future generations in ways that are easily uh, transmissible, in ways that can easily uh, be understood. I think a very good example of that is, is the Old Testament. Those stories in there, the stories of, of Adam and Eve, again, even if you take away the, the divine out of it, take the Adam and the Eve story, take the flood story, take the Abraham story, take David and Goliath story, take any story in the Old Testament, and you'll find these stories, even if you don't believe they are the result of divine inspiration, even if you don't believe that Adam and Noah and David were prophets, even if you just look at it from a functional point of view, uh, there is deep, profound wisdom within these stories. And if, you, and if an individual wants to model their life on that wisdom, then they are going to be uh, miles ahead of somebody who says, you know what, let's just throw away our prior tradition. It is uh, no longer useful to us. It was based on uh, systems and understandings of the world uh, that are no longer relevant to us because we have graduated from those, we have moved on from those, and therefore I prefer to start with start from zero. Uh, that, that's just absolute foolishness. That's insanity. And unfortunately, it seems like that's what some in America would like to do right now by, by tearing down uh, you know, notions of history and saying everyone in the past was... Uh, was was racist or sexist or some other uh, form of uh, bigotry, and therefore everything that they believed and everything that they stood for should be torn down. And we, these new enlightened people, uh, we are going to start from zero, and we are going to be the ones to get things right. Uh, that that is just unbelievably uh, ignorant to believe that you are any smarter or any uh, wiser or any. Uh, morally better than those that came before you and to take their wisdom and simply toss it aside is, is, is absolute uh, insanity, really. Uh, but, but notice how Korhor is able to twist it, on his head, twist it on its head and says, no, 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 you guys, by believing in those traditions that have been handed down for, for many, many years, you guys are the foolish ones. Where in reality, at least for the argument that I've presented, taking those traditions of your fathers. Now, of course, they should be understood critically. Of course, we should, you know, recognize that they were not perfect and there might be areas in which we can 
uh, improve upon those and maybe modernize those in ways that, that uh, are more applicable to our world. But to simply dismiss them as foolishness, uh, in my mind, is, is the true uh, level of foolishness. And then in 15, he says, you know, how do you know of their surety? Again, talking about these traditions that have been handed down. You cannot know of things which you do not see. Therefore, you cannot know that there shall be a Christ. And it's this, this idea, you cannot know of things which you cannot see. Uh, the things which you cannot see, uh, and we'll talk about this when we get into the definition that Alma gives of, of faith. And again, this is why I believe that uh, Alma 32 is the antidote to Korhor's philosophy and the Zoramite's philosophy. Um, is it, th This idea of faith. Because the things that you cannot see are the things of the Spirit. That's what the Spirit is. Those are things that you cannot see. And what Korhor is saying here is there's, there's no spiritual things. There's nothing spiritual. It's, it's all material. Uh, it, it's, all, it's all in the here and now. It's all what you can touch and what you can you know, actually feel and, and those things that you can work for, those things that you can buy with money. Uh, that's what the world is all about. To say that there are things out there that you cannot see, to say is there, that there's some spiritual realm out there, is, is ridiculousness. And, and then, of course, because of that, he comes to the conclusion, he says, you cannot know <clears throat> that there shall be a Christ, because Christ is <clears throat> believed to, to going to be a, a, a spiritual being. He's a, he's a spiritual, uh, he, he's our God, the God of our spirits. Um, and, and therefore, to believe, uh, to, to get rid of the spiritual things, the things that you cannot see, would also result in, in getting rid of Christ. And uh, it reminds me of uh, one of my one of my favorite scriptures. Um, no, there's a lot of them, but certainly one of them that's uh, near the top would be First uh, Corinthians chapter two, verse fourteen, in which it says, "But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him; neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned." And that is the problem that Korhor. Uh, is facing, is that he is clearly the natural man. He's all about the materialistic. He's all about the here and now, what you can actually see. But the, the, the natural man, uh, he receives not the things of the Spirit of God because they are foolishness to him. So Korhor is missing out on this entire world of, of, of the Spirit, this whole world of spiritualism of religion, of belief in God, of faith, and of, of love, and of service to others, he, he's missing out on these things. And he, and he just frankly rejects them, rather than listening to the testimony or the evidence presented by others. He's like, nope, can't see it, doesn't exist. Um, and then uh, at the end of 16, uh, this, he attempts to rationalize away spiritual things by calling them the the effect of a frenzied mind. He says, you, you guys don't really feel the spirit. That's just a frenzied mind. Uh, your, your mind going crazy, playing tricks on you. And again, that, that's also a very modern notion as individuals try to you know, come up with, uh, you know, perform scientific uh, experiments onto the, uh, as to the effect of, uh, you know, feeling the spirit and likening it to some type of a drug or hallucination or release of chemicals within the body. Uh, from my point of view, I, I don't care what happens to my body when I, I've felt the spirit enough in my life that I know what it feels like and I can recognize it. 
Um, I'm still working on it, still trying to uh, perfect that. But to tell me that it's the result of a frenzied mind, uh, you know, excuse me. I I think I know, uh, I think I know what I'm doing here. I I, I think I've uh, had enough experiences with it that I'm able to tell the difference between my mind being frenzied and uh, the actual uh, feelings of the spirit. Uh, you know, going back to the Elder Packer's famous example of what does salt taste like? Uh, you know, just because you can't describe a spiritual experience by no means means uh, that uh, those experiences are not real. Um, we, we need to have confidence uh, in, in that. And so uh, that, that's basically Korahor's argument broken down um, that, uh, you know, we cannot know uh, of things which are to come. Uh, we should dismiss the foolish traditions. Uh, we can't know of things that we cannot see. There's no, there's no spiritual uh, and, and if you think there is, it's just the result of your frenzied mind. Again, these are arguments that we hear today that are presented as if they're new and modern, but, but they're not. They're thousands of years old. People have been putting them and trotting them out for a long time. Um, and, but that doesn't change uh, the, the reality and the anecdote to them, which again is Alma 32, um, and we'll get to that next week. <clears throat> but in short, it's recognizing that... Uh, the world is not all rational. And if we can recognize that and keep that in our mind, that there are things out there other than the, the, the rational, other than the material world, um, then that is the beginning of forming a relationship with God. It's exercising faith. It's recognizing that there are things that we cannot see, but are very, very real. And, uh, you know, on that, I would also just, quickly say that, you know, people uh, are, are sometimes quick to say that uh, religion is responsible for, uh, you know, more death than anything else in the world. And to that, I say that that is absolute nonsense. It, it's, it's rationality. It's this, the belief of Korahor that uh, it doesn't matter what you do. There is no accountability. Everyone just tries to, <clears throat> you know, get in the best position that they can in order to succeed. That philosophy has been responsible for more deaths than any other philosophy that I'm aware of. And to the extent that individuals declared uh, wars in the name of religion, though those were not true religious wars, but those were individuals uh, taking their religion, uh, materializing it, and using religion as a, as a subtext to try to uh, enforce their materialistic uh, views upon other people. Uh, before setting out uh, and, and, and inflicting damage. So, um, but you know, this, this battle between materialism and religion, uh, between the spiritual and the physical, uh, we saw it a lot as we studied the Old Testament together uh, at the end of, uh, during the second half of last year. And this is the battle between Korahor and, and really uh, Nephite society. So Korahor takes these ideas and he presents them um, to the people at Jershon, the anti-Nephi-Lehites, and they're smart enough to say, mm, no, we, we, don't, we don't buy that. Why don't you get out of here? So, and then he heads over to Gideon, and they also pay no attention to him, but they do bring him before uh, their high priest for a discussion. And he <clears throat> uh, begins contending with the high priest. And so let's read verses uh, 23 and 27 through 28. Now the high priest's name was uh, Gedona, 
And Korahor said unto him, Because I do not teach the foolish traditions of your fathers, and because I do not teach this people to bind themselves down under the foolish ordinances and performances which are laid down by ancient priests, to usurp power and authority over them, to keep them in ignorance, that they may not lift up their heads, but be brought down according to thy words. And, this ye lead, uh, and thus ye lead away this people after the foolish traditions of your fathers, and according to your own desires, and ye keep them down, even as it were in bondage, that ye may glut yourself with the labors of their hands, that they durst not look up, look up with boldness, and that they durst not enjoy their rights and privileges. Yea, they durst not make use of that which is their own, lest they should offend their priests, who do yoke them, yoke them according to their desires, and have brought them to believe by their traditions and their dreams and their whims and their visions and their pretended mysteries, that they should, if they did not do according to their words, offend some unknown being who they say is God, a being who never has been seen or known, who never was nor ever will be. What Korhor is arguing here is that you guys are manipulating people with your religion. You're using it to take advantage of them uh, to, to, so that they'll do what you want them to do. And the reason I uh, read these scriptures out and, and just talk about this briefly is I think we as religious people, as we uh, function in today's world, as we interact with those that are not religious, I, I think it's important that we do that we are humble and realistic enough to recognize that it is true that religion has in the past been used to manipulate people. It has been used to uh, further causes that are not necessarily righteous, are not focused on bringing people uh, to God and especially bringing them to Jesus Christ, but it has been used by individuals to, to get gain uh, in some way or another. Uh, that is an unfortunate reality. And so uh, we should be sensitive to the concerns of people because, because it is real. And, and there are people that would uh, perform that. And we need to make sure that uh, as we talk to people and as we try to uh, you know, share our testimonies and teach people the gospel, whether, you know, whether it's people inside the church that are, are struggling or have questions, uh, which is you know perfectly fine. People should be having questions, or whether we're talking to people outside of the church uh, and helping them to understand why it is we do what we do, we should be sensitive to people's concerns. People don't want to be manipulated. People don't want to feel like they're being manipulated or, or, or used or otherwise taken advantage of in some way. And Korhor certainly uh, played upon that and upon those concerns. Uh, and so I think it is something that we need to be uh, aware of and make sure that it is something that we are not doing. Well, after uh, his, his meeting with uh, Gedona, Korhor uh, the is then brought before uh, Alma. And uh, Alma uh, rebuts him accordingly uh, in verse uh, 34 and 35, we'll start with. And now if we do not receive anything for our labors in the church, what doth it profit us to labor in the church, save it were to declare the truth that we may have rejoicings in the joy of our brethren? Then why sayest thou that we preach unto this people to get gain, when thou of thyself knowest that we receive no gain? And now believest thou that, uh, believest thou that we deceive this people that causes such joy in their hearts? So Korhor presented the same arguments that he did to Gedona to Alma, and Alma's response is, what are you talking about? 
I don't personally benefit from going out and teaching people the gospel. I haven't gotten a senine, he says. I haven't gotten any money from doing this. I only do it because I care about people and I believe that this stuff is true. Uh, and I think, you know, how wonderful that we are members uh, of a church in which our local leaders can, you know, say with absolute certainty, I'm not doing this for the money, I guarantee you that. Because, but it is a labor of love, and, and really that is the only compensation that they receive, is that the joy of knowing that they are making a difference in people's lives and helping people uh, to draw closer to uh, draw closer to God. Now, you know, that is, uh, for better or worse, limited to, uh, you know, our local leaders. I think we as members of the church need to be aware that uh, our, our top leaders are compensated. Uh, and that compensation that they receive, although it's not made publicly known, uh, is is not irrelevant. I mean, clearly no one's getting rich off of being uh, an apostle. It's not, certainly not millions of dollars a year, not even anything close. Uh, in fact, I, I, I found a Salt Lake Tribune article on this in, way, in which they discussed what was generally perceived to be the amounts that uh, the, 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 the general authorities received. And, and the comment that was made by a, a member not of our faith uh, when she was presented with the numbers was surprised that it wasn't more. Uh, that these are people that leave a massive organization with access to huge amount of, of resources and that these individuals, uh, that our leaders limit uh, what they are compensated uh, is, 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 speaks very highly of them, I think, in, in today's world. But we, we should recognize that it is not zero. Uh, they, they are compensated, but, you know, there, there's different arguments for that. And for me, I personally have no problem with that. These are men and, and, and women who spend their time, you know, all of their time uh, devoted to the church and for them to receive some compensation uh, for that, as long as it's not uh, extravagant and they're not getting rich off of it, I think is, uh, is appropriate. But I think we should be aware that that is a reality. And I know some members uh, simply are, are not. Uh, but absolutely on the local level, really where the rubber meets the road, where, where you know, the, the hardest interviews take place, where, you know, the, the, in, in many ways, the greatest sacrifices are made, where, you know, bishops receive phone calls at two in the morning, uh, where Relief Society presidents have to, you know, go to uh, put themselves to, in their service in, in difficult situations. You know, at those local levels, there is no compensation. And what a beautiful uh, reality that is for us that we can say the same with Alma. What are you talking about? I'm not getting rid. I'm not getting anything. I'm not getting any personal gain out of this. The only personal gain I get is the joy that it comes into the lives of the people that I'm serving. And in, in verse 30, at the end of verse 35, you know, he says, you know, believest thou that we deceive this people that causes such joy in their hearts? And you know, in, in some ways, if you're going to you know step back and talk about arguments for religion. Now, at the end of the day, people want to be happy. And if your religion makes you happy, then why in the world would someone who's not religious be against that? Why would they be against someone being happy? Even if they don't believe that what they, the thing that makes them happy is, is true, why would you still be against that? 
Uh, it's, it's not as if what you're believing is making you especially happy. And it's not as if you believe that there's going to be some cosmic consequences for them believing this, especially if you're an atheist. So, again, I don't understand why you would be against that other than to gratify your own pride or to uh, prevent other people from living their lives in ways that uh, tries that makes them happy. Uh, and then Alma uh, goes on in uh, 39 and uh, 41, in which he says, Now Alma said unto him, Will ye deny again that there is a God, and also deny the Christ? For behold, I say unto you, I know that there is a God, and also that Christ shall come. And now what evidence have ye that there is no God, or that Christ can, cometh not? I say unto you that ye have done, save it be your word only. But behold, I have all these things as a testimony that these things are true. And ye also have all things as a testimony unto you that they are true. And will ye deny them? Believest thou that these things are true? So Alma uh, puts forth the correct argument that says, well, okay, you don't see the evidence that they are true, but what evidence do you have that they're not? How can, can, can you prove that God does not exist? Can you prove that we, there's no spiritual things? You got lots of people out there saying that there are, but you can't even put forth any evidence that's saying that all of these people that believe these things are wrong. Uh, so I think, you know, from, from a logical point of view, I find that to be very persuasive. Now, of course, they'll come back and you'll say, well, you can't prove that they're right, that, 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 that they exist, to which we will say, you're right. We can't prove these things using the means that you want to prove them. And the reason for that is because they're not material. These are spiritual things. And so if you're not even going to recognize the presence of spiritual things, then you're not even speaking the same language. You're not even qualified to discuss God and whether God exists because you deny the only means of him communicating with us and of proving that these things are true. So you say you want some type of proof, but you deny the only method through which that proof can be given. Um, so Alma pushes back in a very, very appropriate way. Uh, and then verses 43 and 44. And now Korahor said unto Alma, If thou wilt show me a sign that I may be convinced that there is a God, yea, show unto me that he hath power, and then will, I then will I be convinced of the truth of thy words. But Alma said unto him, Thou hast had signs enough. Will ye tempt your God? Will ye say, Show unto me a sign, when ye have the testimony of all these thy brethren, and also all the holy prophets? The scriptures are laid before thee, yea, and all things denote that there is a God, yea, even the earth, and all things that are upon the face of it, yea, and its motions, yea, and also all the planets which move in their regular form, do witness that there is a supreme creator. I love this argument by Alma because it is so true. Korhor, you say you want a sign? There are signs all around you, but you refuse to recognize them. You think one more is going to make a difference? Look at this world around you. Look at what you are surrounded by. These are all proof that God exists. Look at the beautiful order in the world. Look at everything in your life. You're so blessed, but yet you refuse to see the signs. You refuse to recognize that God is there. And if, if you refuse to recognize it, why would I give you one more sign? So after that, uh, Alma says, okay, fine. You want a sign? You're going to be struck dumb. And then Korhor is, in fact, uh, struck dumb. 
And then he writes out kind of this uh, strange confession about how uh, the devil appeared to him as an angel and said, go and reclaim this people for they've all gone astray and tell them that there is no God. And it's just very, very strange uh, that Korahor would believe that an angel came to him and told him that angels and God and all those things aren't real. It's like it's an angel came to you and said there's no such thing as God. It's like Korahor, that, sorry, that, that, that doesn't go, that, that doesn't compute. Um, his story clearly just doesn't stand up. And at the end of the day, he made the decision not to believe. This is a Korahor problem. He exercised his agency in a way that lacked faith, where he chose not to believe uh, the things of God. And as a result of that, um, he is uh, the, the thing that he used to damage people, which is his voice, uh, to, to push back against the notion of God, is taken away from him as he is struck dumb. And uh, with that, he is left to fend for himself. And without the protection of God, uh, he, he loses. And that is, I think, is a reminder of the fine line that each of us walk each day as we struggle in this material world. Um, you know, we've been reminded very, you know, we're in the process of being reminded that there's, there's a very fine line between our world, between this material world, between the chaos that is out there and what Alma referred to, a, a loving God that provides order. Uh, coronavirus certainly is not order. Um, and it's making it, it's a reminder to us of a lot of things. But one of the things is that we as humans are subject to, to disaster, uh, but for the grace of God, but for his, all that he has given to us. Uh, you know, th this world is a dangerous, nasty, terrible place. But God has structured it in a way so that we, his children, can come down and enjoy it and see the beauty in it. And those things are signs if we are willing to take them. Uh, if we're not, if we're like Korhor and we reject those signs, then we are subject to uh, the results, to those consequences of a natural world. And, uh, you know, Korhor taught a materialistic, naturalistic philosophy. And he was trampled to death while begging for food. Uh, and so he met a materialistic and a naturalistic ending. Chapter 31, uh, we go to this group called the Zoramites. Uh, they happen to be the one that, uh, that, that trampled down <laughs> poor Korhor. Uh, but they are not doing what they are supposed to be doing. And uh, Alma and his brethren are concerned that by so doing, they might uh, enter into some type of alliance with uh, the Lamanites. And as a result, there could be real troubles for the Nephites. And so, uh, so they come up with a plan. And that plan is uh, verse 5. And now as the preaching of the word had a great tendency to lead the people to do that which was just, yea, it had had more powerful effect upon the minds of the people than the sword or anything else which had happened unto them. Therefore Alma thought it was expedient that they should try the virtue of the word of God. Uh, Elder Packer said, True doctrine understood changes attitudes and behavior. The study of doctrines of the gospel will improve behavior quicker than a study of behavior will improve behavior. I think that's a, a true and a powerful idea that if we really want to change people's behavior, we don't, we don't force those changes upon them if we want to get true and everlasting change. The only, 
the, the best way to change behavior in a way that's consistent with what the Lord expects is to properly teach them the gospel and help them uh, take, uh, help them be converted unto uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, so we see that they were not, uh, these Zoramites, they were not keeping the commandments uh, and the little things. Uh, and as Alma and his brethren were there to try to teach them, they observed that they were undergoing this very strange religious ritual. Involved something called a uh, ramiumptum, and uh, they would go on there once a week and utter this strange prayer. And this prayer is found in verses 15 through 18 in chapter 31. Holy, holy God, we believe that thou art God, and we believe that thou art holy, and that thou wast a spirit, and that thou art a spirit, and that thou wilt be a spirit forever. Holy God, we believe that thou hast separated us from our brethren, and we do, do not believe in the tradition of our brethren, which was handed down to them by the childishness of their fathers. But we believe that thou hast elected us to be thy holy children, and also thou hast made it known unto us that there shall be no Christ." But thou art the same yesterday, today, and forever, and thou hast elected us that we shall be saved. Whilst all around us are elected to be cast by thy wrath down to hell. For the which holiness, O God, we thank thee, and we also thank thee that thou hast elected us, that we may not be led away after the foolish traditions of our brethren, which doth bind them down to a belief of Christ, which doth lead their hearts to wander far from thee, our God. And again we thank thee, O God, that we are a chosen and a holy people. Amen. So you can see in there a lot of parallels between what Korhor was teaching and what the Zoramites believed. And of course, the Zoramites did so uh, by, they rationalized it through a, a belief in some type of deity out there where Korhor simply rejected the idea of a god. But the conclusions in these two are really not that different. Uh, they rejected Christ. They rejected the idea that God would come down. In verse 15, they said God is only a spirit. And with that, uh, they might as well not even believe in a God. If he's only this spirit that has no ability to impact us in the real world, uh, then, then why even believe in him? It's no different than Korhor's lack of uh, belief and, and denying of a God. Uh, in verse 16, they deny that there is a Christ or that there ever will be a Christ. And again, it's this idea that God is going to come down into our world to take upon himself a body, to redeem us of our sins, and to be resurrected. It's all those notions, they did not like them and they rejected them. Uh, I think it's critical that we realize when we say we believe in God as Christians, what exactly it is we're talking about. We're not just talking about some spirit out there that kind of does his own God thing. We're talking about a personal God that came to this world, that is intimately involved in the details of this world. He created this world. And then he came down here and he atoned for our sins because we commit sins. But he loves us, and so he prepared a way for us to overcome those sins and to overcome death as well. So when they are denying Christ, they are denying all of those things in favor of some spirit that is out there that looks favorably upon them according to their views, but really makes no demands of them um, and allows them to live their lives as if God wasn't there in the first place. 
And then in 17 and 18, they uh, have this notion of uh, elitism in which they say they are the elect of God because God has told them uh, that Christ will not be there uh, and, and that they are favored because they do not hold to these foolish traditions of their fathers. Again, it's important to realize that these are the same conclusions that Korahor came to. They just are couching them in the context of this uh, religion that believes in a impersonal spiritual God, but yet nonetheless favors them because he does not lead them away uh, with traditions of a personal God that will come and redeem us from our sins. Now, I think we do have to be careful as we read about the, the, the way in which they re, refer themselves as being these elect people, these chosen people. Now, we, of course, as members of the Church of Latter-day Saints, believe that we are uniquely blessed because we have the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what a great gift that is. But that does not make us elect. That does not make us better than anyone else. That simply means we have access to uh, incredible knowledge that we should desire to share with everyone else. It should not make, <clears throat> excuse me, make us feel that we are in any way uh, better than anyone else. We go through the same struggles. We are just fortunate to have this knowledge, and but for the grace of God, uh, we could be just like other people that, that lack this knowledge and that lack this information. And so it's our job to, number one, live up to the privileges that we have, with access to this information. And then number two, <clears throat> share it with other people. Let other people know uh, the, the beauties and the joy that come from knowing your relationship to God, from, from knowing his plan for you, and from knowing that we can be with our families together forever. Um, and then in verse 23, we learn more about these people. Now, after the people had all offered up thanks after this manner, they returned to their homes, never speaking of their God again until they had assembled themselves together again to the Holy Stand to offer up thanks after their manner. So not only do they believe a philosophy that requires nothing of them, they don't even really think that much of this philosophy. They only think about it once a week when they go and give gratitude uh, for, for being uh, to, to God, for making them better than everyone else. And then they go back to their homes and really never think about it. Uh, so not only is it a weak philosophy, but they're fraudulent in their belief of this philosophy. Uh, they, they, they are fakes. They are hypocrites um, in what they do. They are the people that go to church only uh, for to be seen at church. And then they return uh, to their homes never to think of the church again. Now, I'm going to assume that uh, with this concept, I am somewhat preaching to the choir. Uh, the fact that you are spending your time uh, watching a, a lesson focused on the Book of Mormon is probably an indication that you're a, a devout member of the church uh, for, for most of you. Maybe there's someone not uh, in that, uh, that that's not that way. Um, but, but I'm assuming in some ways I am somewhat preaching to the choir with this notion, but we need to make sure that we are not like the Zoramites in our beliefs and what we claim to believe. We need to make sure that the, that, that the doctrines of the gospel that we claim to believe in, that we'll give talks about on Sunday, that we'll testify of uh, in meetings, that we'll watch videos about or maybe post on Facebook, we need to make sure that we are living up 
to those standards uh, that we ascribe to. Not perfectly, because that's impossible, uh, but that we at least do more than give them lip service, that we are sincere in our beliefs and are sincere in our desires to, to help other people uh, draw closer to Christ and are sincere in our own efforts to draw closer to him as well, not like the Zoramites. So uh, I view this as a kind of a wake-up call, certainly something that we as Latter-day Saints need to be cognizant of, need to be careful about, that we are not like the Zoramites, but rather we are uh, sincere in our beliefs and that we take our beliefs and everything that comes with it uh, very seriously. Now, as uh, Alma and uh, those that are with him, the sons of uh, Messiah uh, and Amulek and, and others that are there, as they see this, they become uh, very concerned. They're about to embark on an effort to try to, uh, again, uh, try the virtue of the word of God and, and, and helping these people to draw closer to God, to, to reclaim them. Um, and, and so they're, you know, having this own little pep talk amongst themselves in which Alma is leading them. And uh, that pep talk ends with verses 34 and 35, and that's where I want to end uh, today. O Lord, wilt thou grant unto us that we may have success in bringing them again unto thee in Christ? Behold, O Lord, their souls are precious, and many of them are our brethren. Therefore give unto us, O Lord, power and wisdom, that we may bring these, our brethren, again unto thee. Uh, I, I love Alma. He's such a tender soul. You can tell he's in it for the right reasons. He's doing the right things, not because he's trying to become famous, not because he's trying to become wealthy, but because he loves people. Because he wants these people, his brethren, to come unto Christ and to have that relationship with him, ultimately so that they can receive the same blessings that he himself is striving for. And hopefully that is our efforts and our motives and everything that we do is out of love for other people. And so, uh, you know, do we feel the same way uh, as we share our message? And do we feel the same way about those that are, that are not receptive to the message? I think that's an important thing to think about as well. Uh, is our feelings to people only dependent upon whether or not they agree with us? Whether or not they will accept, uh, whether they choose to accept uh, the message that we <clears throat> hope to share with them? Or if they believe something different, do we still love them? Do we still desire their happiness? Do we still want to have relationships with them um, because we, we love them? And hopefully we'll be like Alma and we'll do the right thing uh, for the right reasons. And uh, hopefully after today's lesson, we have a little bit better understanding of some of the philosophies that are out there and uh, ways to protect ourselves against them and, and those uh, around us. Uh, and that we will uh, keep the faith and help others to do so out of love for them. And I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.